Welcome, and thank you for listening to Sandy Creek Stirrings. I'm your host, Joshua Jimenez. And if you're going to win souls, you've got to love souls. In spite of their meanness, in spite of the way they look, in spite of everything, you've got to seek to bring souls to Jesus Christ because you love them, because Jesus loved them, and because Jesus died for them, and you're trying to bring them to the Son of God. The Bible says in Psalm 84, 11, my last verse, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I based my whole life on that, that it pays to serve God, and I believe that with all my heart. God has given us a guidebook. God has given us a directional map. And that guidebook, that map, is the precious Word of God. Listen, don't just go and sit in the pew. Find some way to serve and serve as a family. Be a part of everything at church. And when you learn to love what God loves, um, your children will learn to love it as well. Homes are not that spiritually strong. We're getting overtaken by the world quickly, but unfortunately, we're pumping all the sewage in. You know, we're letting the world in when that ought to be a haven. Merry Christmas to you. We are here on the week of Christmas. Oh, man, I sure do love Christmas. I'm looking forward to Christmas morning when my wife can open up the gifts I bought her. I'm just so excited. This is fun. Yeah, just remind you what we talked about Friday, though. Jesus is the reason for the season. Let's make that a point. Let's make it an emphasis this year. Now, in today's episode, I'm going to give you a brief intro, and then I'm going to be playing a message that I preached not too long ago. And uh, I preached this message the week of Thanksgiving at my home church. And we were doing the Lord's Supper that night, and uh, my pastor had asked me to preach a message. And so I preached on this do in remembrance of me. In remembrance of what? In remembrance of what Christ did for us. And so I thought it would be very appropriate to play this episode or this message here on this podcast episode today, because the whole reason we celebrate Christmas is in remembrance of what he did. By the way, the Christmas story doesn't just end that he was born. That's not even the beginning. That's almost the middle of the story, because the Christmas story really started in Genesis chapter 3, when God promised that he would send a Savior. That's where it all started. In fact, the Bible says it started even before then, when Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. And so this episode, we've entitled it Born to Die. And so as I go into the message today, I will start off talking about the Lord's Supper and how my church at that time was going to be having the Lord's Supper and discussing why we do it in remembrance of Christ. Then the point I want you to get is what Christ did for us. What Christ did for us, because that's what Christmas is all about. Don't forget that, my friend. Don't forget that it's all in remembrance of Him and the sacrifice He was willing to make. Now, at the end of today's episode, we will be playing O Holy Night, O Holy Night, and that'll be from the CD entitled O Holy Night by Caleb Galvin, piano solos by Caleb Galvin. You can buy that CD at envypublications.org. Again, that's envypublications.org. 
www.thepowerofprayer.org, and you can buy those, that CD there, and um, you would enjoy that CD. You really would. So let me encourage you to go and buy it, And but it's O Holy Night. We use it with permission from North Valley publications. And so, but here it is. Here's the the episode for today, Born to Die. We'll be playing O Holy Night at the end of this episode. My friend, don't forget, on Christmas Eve, we'll be re-releasing our Christmas piano playlist, and you'll enjoy that episode. So let me encourage you, friend, hey, keep looking up and keep stirred up for the cause of Christ. Merry Christmas to you and yours. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tonight, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I don't know what he's talking about, short message. You told me as long as I was done before 11, we'd be fine since it's not a school night. So um, no, I'm just kidding. We'll get out of here shortly. And um, I do want to make sure we have time for the Lord's Supper. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk two time. And uh, so I'm going to go super fast. And if you can't understand what I'm saying, oh, well, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. And I've been accused of talking too fast before. But First Corinthians chapter 11, let's look in verse number 23 tonight. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread when he had given thanks, he break it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Lord, I do thank you for this time that we've had tonight. Lord, for this time that we've already had to give thanks to you. Lord, also those around us for just the great and many blessings that you've given us. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us tonight. Lord, I pray that you'd give me the exact words that I should say. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. This being the week of Thanksgiving, I think this is the fourth year in a row that preacher has asked me to preach on the uh, Tuesday night service of the Thanksgiving week. I've preached before on what thankfulness did in the life of Moses. I've been able to preach that message a couple places. Um, I preached a message on the pilgrims and went over that story that we often hear during this week in this time period. I preached a message before on the command for Thanksgiving and I was praying about what to preach this um, year, and this is what the Lord gave me, and so we'll go through it um, as quickly but as diligently as we can. Uh, this evening, we'll be taking the Lord's Supper, as you can see before you. It's all set up and ready to go. Um, it's one of two ordinances given to the local church that the local church should and is commanded to observe. And by the way, when we say local church, I'm not talking about this building. I'm talking about you, the people. We are commanded as a body, as a church body, to observe this ordinance that Christ has given us. It's a command from God. And that's the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. The second ordinance is baptism. It's one of the Baptist distinctives as we hold to the two ordinances given to the local church, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And so we come here tonight to Paul talking about and giving some of the requirements, giving some of the reminders of the Lord's Supper. And he begins to go through and talk about that night where Jesus Christ, where the night where Jesus Christ was betrayed, where they 
together, Jesus and the disciples, the apostles, had the very first Lord's Supper and what we do as a representation of that to be reminded of what Christ did. And Paul here is talking, he gives some of the requirements. We talk about the Lord's Supper. Number one, we have the, the grape juice, which signifies the blood. It's a pure 100% uh, grape juice that we use in the cups tonight, and that will take part of. And then there was also that unleavened bread that Jesus broke and said, take, eat, this is my body. And of course, it's unleavened because leaven within Scripture was a picture of sin, and Christ didn't have any sin. He was perfect. He was the spotless Lamb of God. And so he reminds us of that. Now, let me be very clear. We are not Catholic. We do not teach, nor does the Bible teach that the grape juice or the bread becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry. I'm not a cannibal. You may be, but I'm not. And I'm not changing that anytime soon. It's just a simple representation. And so Paul begins to outline some of the facts and some of the requirements for taking the Lord's Supper. Number one, you should be saved. How can you take the Lord's Supper, a picture of His sacrifice, but not having had already accepted His sacrifice? It just doesn't work. You have to be saved. You have to be baptized because you must be the member of a local New Testament church of like faith. And so if you're not saved tonight, if you haven't been baptized, if, if you're not a member of a like faith church, let me encourage you, according to the Word of God, I would advise you not to partake of the Lord's Supper tonight because the requirements aren't there. And Christ and God, um, God very um, sternly warns us that we do not want to take the Lord's Supper unworthily. There are four requirements. I've given you three already. The fourth is found in verse number, I believe it's verse number um, 28 there. But let a man examine himself. The fourth requirement of the Lord's Supper is that each man have a time of introspection where he looks inside of himself and says, God, is there any sin on my heart that I have not confessed or gotten right with you? Because if there is a sin on my heart that, I'm, that I am not willing to get rid of, that I know that's not right, it shouldn't be in my life. If there's a sin in my heart like that and I'm not willing to get rid of it and I take the Lord's Supper, I'm taking it, the Bible says, unworthily. And there is a consequence that comes with taking the Lord's Supper unworthily. Those are the four requirements. Salvation, baptism, a member of a church of like faith, and having a heart clean before God. By the way, it's up to you. Let a man judge himself. I can't judge you. I can't go to somebody and say, you can't take the Lord's Supper. Let me tell you why. That's not my place. It's each person has to judge himself. Why do we take the Lord's Supper, though? Look in verse number 24. Paul gives us the reason why we take the Lord's Supper. Verse number 24 says, at the end of it, it says, This do in remembrance of me. Paul is not saying, do the Lord's Supper in remembrance of me, Paul. He's quoting Jesus Christ who said that in Luke chapter 22, verse 19. Jesus Christ said, when you do this, because you should, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. I want to just very quickly give you some things that if you've been coming to VSIBC for any length of time, you already know. But I want to remind us about it tonight that we remember some things. Number one, what does Christ want us to remember? If you're taking any notes, number one, He wants us to remember the sinner. He wants us to remember the sinner. God created a world that was perfect and sinless, had no sin in it. God wouldn't put the sin in the world. It was sinless. It was perfect. He created man and woman, put them in the garden, and gave them one single command. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And isn't it interesting? Because I would have made the same decision if I were there because I know myself. They couldn't keep one single commandment. 
And they went and partook of that fruit. God said, you should not eat of it. You should not partake of it. By the way, the only thing they gained by taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was nothing good. They only gained evil. They already had all the good they needed, but they gained evil. And now being possessed and chained by sin that would condemn the entire race of man, God in His mercy took man and kicked him out of the garden. You say, why could they not just live in the Garden of Eden? Because there was another tree of significance in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life. Which if they eat of that tree, they would live forever. And God said, no, in an act of mercy, I will not let you live forever in a sinful state. I praise the Lord for that. Amen. Because I don't want to live in this sinful flesh for eternity and eons. I don't want that. And God in mercy kicked them out and said, now there has to be a plan. Can I tell you this though? First Peter chapter one, verses 19 through 20 tell us that Christ had already determined what the plan was. If you were to go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, it says that Christ, who with Himself would be the spotless Lamb of God, and it was foreordained before the foundation of the world, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, that He would come and be the sacrifice. Do you realize before God ever said, let there be light, He had already determined, when they sin, I will go. I will be the sacrifice. See the sinner. Number two, I want you to see the sent one. See the sent one. Jesus Christ over 2,000 years ago came in a fulfillment of prophecy and God sent His Son to earth. He who knew no sin was now entering this sin-sick world. And can you imagine the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as He entered the, the, the world? He had no, no, no standing ovation. There wasn't an assembly line of people to greet him as he entered the world. No, instead, he was born as a babe. He was laid in a feed trough in a barn. That was how my Savior entered the world. He entered laying in a feed trough. Can you imagine as the stars even hushed their glow, as they watched their creator, the one who created all the stars, was now a helpless babe in the arm of his mother. This was my Savior. He was the sent one. He was sent for me, the sinner. And here he was going to take on flesh and show us that if we could live solely led by the Holy Spirit, what man could do. And here God began to live his life. The Bible says that he grew in wisdom and stature. God limited himself. Because how else could the all-knowing God, the creator of the world, grow in wisdom? God limited himself. And he began to grow. And he began to see many things happen within his life, yet he came for one single purpose, to die for you and I. The song says it right, he was born to die. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And here he goes, he starts his earthly ministry, he resists temptation, he flees evil, he heals the lame, he heals the deaf, he heals the dumb, he raises the dead. Why? Just to prove that he was indeed God, fulfilling over 360 prophecies that were written hundreds of years before he even arrived on the earth. He did it all because he was God to prove that he was indeed the sent one. Number three, I want you to see the supper that we'll be looking at tonight. I want you to see the supper. We come to the end of his earthly ministry. 
And we find Jesus, the, the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, the Creator of the world. Jesus gathers His apostles into that upper room. And there they are. They're going to have the Passover together. But before anything starts, my king, the king of glory, takes a towel and wraps himself and kneels down on the ground to wash the feet of his disciples, showing them what the heart of a sacrificial servant is, saying, he that is the servant is the greatest among you. The greatest among you is the servant, showing who was truly the greatest in the room. Jesus Christ was, for he was the sacrificial servant. They take that supper together, and at some point in time, he looks at Judas, the one who was, uh, it was uh, prophesied in Psalm 41 that he would betray Jesus Christ. My own familiar friend hath forsaken me. And he says, that thou doest, do quickly. And Judas goes out into the night on a devil's errand. They finish their supper, they go out into the night after singing a hymn and go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want you to notice not only the sinner, not only the sent one, not only the supper, but I want you to notice next the suffering. The suffering. Here we find Jesus, if you can come upon the scene, the dark night in the garden, and the Bible says that He goes about a stone's throw away from the disciples. And there He kneels down, the Bible says, in agony. And He begins to agonize as He prays to the Father, you say, what was he agonizing over? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Was he agonizing over his death? I don't necessarily think so. Was he agonizing over the pain he would suffer? Maybe he would suffer a lot of pain. I think the answer though is he was agonizing over the fact that he knew in just a short period of time, for the first time in forever, he would be separated from God the Father. He would be separated from God. There would be a separation, there'd be a dividing line there, and the Holy One of Israel would now take on sin upon Himself for us, for the sinner. And the Bible says in agony, He begins to cry out to God, so much so that the Bible says in Luke chapter, I believe it's 22, or um, I got the reference written down somewhere in here, but Luke chapter 22, verse 43, an angel is sent from God the Father to strengthen him. That's a, an agony. You say, why? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. Notice strong crying and tears. Sometimes we think of Jesus and we don't put the, the truth behind. He was 100% man, but 100% God. And can you see him as he kneels there in agony, the tears streaming down his faith? Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, I'm not going to, I'm not going to run from the sacrifice. I'm not going to run from the cross. But if there's any other way to do this where I don't have to be separated from you, where I don't have to experience sin, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But he answers with this in Luke 22, verse number 20, uh, 42 through 44, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup. The cup of sin, the cup of separation from God, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. In the garden of Gethsemane, I, I believe, this is my personal opinion, I believe that the heart of Jesus Christ literally ruptured in that moment. You say, is that possible? Medical science says that a man can live with a ruptured heart for up to five days. 
the agony that's there ruptures that ruptures his heart and ruptures his capillaries to where literally the blood rushes where the sweat comes through and the Bible says he sweat great drops of blood many historians believe that if you read the accounts that he was this close to physical death in agony and in internal agony and can you see as the tears stream down his face he wipes his brow and blood upon his hand as the blood drops from his forehead to the ground leaving a bloody pool where he was praying then he goes back to his disciples who should have been praying, but the Bible says they were sleeping for sorrow. What a human response. We have a sorrowful time and we want to go to bed. I'm going to sleep this away where Christ was praying. And he's told them twice already, pray, pray, pray. And he sees the torch lights coming. There's men coming. And he says, sleep on now, sleep on. The men come, historians say, probably somewhere between 600 and 1,200 men, soldiers and men alike, come for my Lord and Savior. Torches about, led by Judas Iscariot, the one who in just a short period of time is going to go out to, into the night and hang himself. Yeah. And he comes and he gives the, a kiss to the Savior, and, and Jesus looks at him with the love of a Savior and says, Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? And he says, who are you looking for? They say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he answers with who he truly is. He says, I am. He wasn't saying, I am Jesus of Nazareth. He's saying, I am that I am. He's saying, the God that spoke to Moses from the burning bush, the one who Moses said, who will I, who sent me? What will I tell them? Who sent me? Tell them I am that I am. And when he said I am, that glory from God just kind of shot out of his flesh. And the Bible says that they all, 612 of them, 1,200 of them, fell down on their faces. Peter got so excited, he pulled the sword out. He thought, we're going to win. They're all on the ground. He went up to Malchus, was trying to hit him on the head, lopped his ear off. He missed. Can you see Malchus screaming? Jesus picks up that bloody ear, puts it on back on Malchus's uh, side of his head, and he's healed. Just like my Lord. And Jesus tells Peter, put up again thy sword, Matthew 26, 52. Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou can I not, that I cannot pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels. There's that song in our hymnal, he could have called ten thousand angels, that's not accurate. A legion contained 6,000 soldiers. There was over 72,000 angels ready and waiting with fiery swords that the moment he whispered, come, they would be there. Can I remind you what one angel could do? In 2 Kings, one angel came and 185,000 Assyrians were dead. That's one angel. Jesus said 72,000, over 72,000. He said, Peter, if I needed the sword, I, I've got 72,000 angels ready. They take my Lord. And they take him to the court of the Sanhedrin where the time they met, by the way, it was illegal for them to meet. You look at the historical account, there was 14 illegal things that they did in the trial of my Lord, but they were so vile against him. They did it anyway. And they began to beat upon him with their hands. At some point, the Bible says that they took that beard that with the hair was rooted in his jaw and in his, and in his cheeks, and they grabbed it and they literally ripped it off his face, shredded and bleeding. Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. He said, I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Our natural reaction if someone spits at us is to turn away, to cower back, but he took it. He just stood there and took it. My Savior did that for me. 
While they spat upon him, he didn't react. After the beating and spitting and ripping and everything they did, he didn't even look like a human anymore. Isaiah 52 verse 14 says, As many were astonied at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Then they take him to Pilate. And Pilate is so unsure of what to do with him. His wife says, have nothing to do with this man. I've suffered many terrors in a dream because of him. I have nothing to do with him. And Pilate says three times, three times, I find no fault in him. He could have searched for forever. He would have never found a fault in Jesus. I find no fault in him. Some people say that maybe Pilate had Jesus beat just so the crowd would begin to feel sorry for him. And they took my Jesus, remember the one who created us. They took my Lord, they sent him to Herod. Herod was kind of excited. He wanted to meet this Jesus. The Bible says in answer of Isaiah 53, 7, as the sheep before the shears is done, so he opened not his mouth. He didn't speak a word to Herod. Herod said, I, I can't do anything with him. He sent him back to Pilate. Pilate said, okay, let's have him scourged. Scourged. They take him what historically is commonly known what they did. They would have taken him into a, a place and there'd be leather bands or, or chains hanging down from the ceiling and they would have lifted him up and tied his wrists up to where his toes would have been barely touching the ground, his body completely stretched. And then they would have sent in the executioner because that was his job to kill you right there. You weren't supposed to get to the cross. You're supposed to die right here in this room. And he would take that cat of nine tails with the metal and the bone and the glass and all the things embedded in the end of those twine. And 39 times, I think sometimes we think 39, when we don't think of one, two, three, four, 39. As the, as the whip would come around, I mean, this guy was a professional. He wasn't, he wasn't me just going out there and, and doing a whipping. He was a professional. He did this for a living. This was his job to kill whoever was at the whipping post. And when those lashes would come around, they would dig into the side and they would rip back through. When he jerked back with all his force, that whip, they would dig through like a plow in a field, literally shredding. He would have had, I'm not trying to be crude or cruel. But he would have had a skirt of ribbons of skin hanging down from his waist, showing all his bones. The Bible says in Psalm 22, I see all my bones. You could have seen his spine. You could have seen his rib cage from the beating he would have suffered. They took that robe, that royal purple robe, and they put it upon him and they began to mock him. They took that crown of thorns. These, these thorns were as hard as nails and they took and they put it upon his, upon his head and they took that, that, that rod and they beat it into his head like you'd drive a nail into a post and the blood would bubble and run down his face that was already marred beyond compare. Why? Because he loved us. Because He loved us. They do all this, and even through this, the crowd just cries, crucify Him, crucify Him. They put the cross upon His back. He carries it up as far as He can. He falls down. He can't, he can't handle it. He doesn't have the strength anymore. They get somebody else to carry it. They get to the top of the hill, and something happens for the first time in Roman history. He goes and He lays down on the cross. That had never happened before. Every single time before, they had to grab the guy and force him with all their strength to lay down on the cross. But not my Lord. He just lay down. And they took those nails and they fashioned, fastened with crushing and, and bruising blows. They fashioned his hands, fastened his hands and his feet together and then onto the cross. And then they inched that cross up to that hole they had dug. And when they picked it up and put it in, the Bible says that all his joints came out of place. Can you imagine the sickening sounding of that pop when every single joint in his body came out of place? And there he was. Do you see the suffering? 
You see the suffering. Next I see, and we're hurrying through, we're almost done, the sacrifice. I see the sacrifice. Jesus would spend, I believe it's six hours on the cross. And on the cross, he says seven statements. It was incredible because most men didn't say anything on the cross. They were too busy trying to breathe. You died of asphyxiation. You died of suffocation. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't breathe on the cross. You had to push up against your already bruised and broken feet to try and gain a breath and get up from the sagging that was happening from the nails and try and get a breath and then collapse back down. It was a tiring thing. But Jesus said seven statements. I want to give them to you very quickly. We're hurrying. He said, number one, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The, the way this is written in the Greek is a, a constant tense of the verb, meaning it gives the idea that it wasn't just said one time, but when they began to mock him, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When they began to spit upon him, they, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When they began to gamble on his robe, they said, a constant, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I believe he looked down at the tunnels of time and he looked at you and I and saw us and ple- pleaded with the Father, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He said, number two, I find that he, he tells John to take care of his mother. Second statement, take care of my mother. Woman, behold thy son, behold thy mother. The third statement he makes on the cross is while one thief is mocking him, if thou be the Christ, get, get down from there. Get us all down from there. But the other thief saw something in him and said, Lord, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus responds, verily today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Every The first three statements were still not about himself and his suffering, but were about others. Then with statement number four, he says, I thirst. I thirst. Now, Jesus was thirsty. He was suffering from lack of dehydration. You look at Psalm 22, he was burning up inside. If you've ever been burned before, that's what it feels like on the inside when you're dehydrated. But I don't personally, this is me, I don't personally believe he was necessarily asking for a drink of physical water. I believe because of what accompanies it next I believe he was telling the Father, I thirst. That cup, he said, if we can somehow take it away from me, let's do it. But I think at this point, he said, I'm ready to be offered. I thirst. Bring the cup on. Bring on the sin. Bring on the separation. I'm ready now to be offered. I thirst. And when the cup of sin began to be poured out upon the Savior, you'll find that immediately when he said, I thirst, the land was covered in darkness. Why? Because the light of the world who knew no sin, who was the Holy One of Israel, was now taking on our sin for us. He said, I thirst. Next, he said, it is finished. It is finished. Now, that's a three-word statement. Three-word statement in the English, a one-word statement in the Greek. We've seen the sinner. We've seen the sent one. We've seen the whatever the other ones were. This one's the salvation. He says, it is finished. Three words. In the English, one word in the Greek. We're almost finished. He said, teleo in Greek. Teleo. Teleo had many historical meanings when you go back and you study it out. If you were to go back and look in history, when they would bring the Passover lamb and they would inspect it to make sure it was spotless and it was ready to be sacrificed, if it came through and it, would, it was okay to be sacrificed, they would take it to the priests and they would look at that lamb and they'd say, teleo. It's ready to be sacrificed. When, a, when you looked at a Greek painter and they just finished a painting and everything harmonized, it fit together, it was finished, it looked good, it fit, they would say, Taleo, it is finished. 
When you had a prisoner who had committed many crimes on his prison door, they would list those crimes. And as they were paid off, they would strike them out. And when the last one was paid, they would stamp Taleo on the door. It is finished. It's paid in full. It's done. When the Cyclops, they weren't the, the tall, one-eyed guys we think of. These were the special forces of the Greek army. The, the Navy SEALs of the Greek army. When they had a very dangerous mission, they would go out with a runner alongside them. And when it was clear, when they had been in battle and it was clear, the victory was won. You see where I'm going with this? The victory was won and there was no way that the other force could have the victory. They would send the runner back with one word on his lips. Taleo. It's finished. The victory has been won. When Christ said it is finished, he didn't just say it's finished. He said it's paid in full. I'm the lamb without spot. I've been sacrificed. The victory has been won. Taleo, it's finished. And then last but not least, he said, Father, into my hands I commend my spirit. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he gave up his life. The Bible says in John chapter 10, John chapter 10, that he said, no man could take my life. I lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. And Christ laid down his life and gave up his spirit. Some believe that Jesus had to go and burn in hell for three days. It's simply not true or else Christ would have not said it is finished on the cross. You say, where did he go? I believe that as those angels were watching down from heaven, as their creator was literally being destroyed physically upon the cross, they were ready to go. And then he gives up the spirit. If you can imagine with me, I've got a big imagination. If you can imagine with me, I can see an angel on the watchtower of heaven. He looks across and outside the gates of heaven, he sees the spirit of the creator coming. And he says, there he comes. He's got the blood. And Christ approaches the gates of heaven and he's got the blood that he shed on Calvary. And I believe the angel cries out according to Psalm 24 and verse number 7, Lift up, O ye gates, for the King of glory is coming. In verse number 8, the gates respond, Is mighty in battle. He is the King of glory. And they open up the gates as the, as the angels get a procession line and they salute him as he comes in and he's got the blood and he goes to the mercy seat of heaven. And he says, Father, this is the blood that I have shed for mankind. And he begins to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat of heaven. And I can see God the Father, tears, as he does something he's been wanting to do for, for millennium. He rushes down to the temple there in Jerusalem. And that holy place that had divided everybody from him, because you had to go through a priest. Now the high priest was in heaven, sprinkling the last sacrifice upon the mercy seat. And God the Father from the top rents that veil in twain, because now anybody can come to the Father if they'll go through his son. At that moment, every sin was paid. It's gone. It's finished. It's Taleo. The victory's been won. Why did he do that? Because he loved you and I. Why did he do it? Because he loved you and I. This do in remembrance of me. Three days later, he would go to that grave. He'd pick his body back up. I have the power. And he takes back the keys of death and the grave and says, if you'll just place your trust in me, your sins will be forgiven. Amen. I'm sure you know that story tonight, but I wanted to give it to you again. Let me ask you a question. And I'll finish it up. Three statements and three or four statements will be finished. Have we truly remembered this week to be thankful for the sacrifice and remember what he did? You say, of course I do. It, it would be impossible. All that Christ did for me, all that you just talked about, it would be impossible for me to forget that. 
Not so, my friend. The Bible talks about in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, Paul talks about a people who says they knew God. They knew God. They knew Him. They knew His sacrifice. They had talked with Him. They knew God. He says that in verse 21. But then he says something in their life changed. And they became known instead of a Christian. They became known as this. You'll find this in verses 22 through 31 of Romans chapter 1. They became fools, unrighteous, fornicators, wicked, covetous, malicious, enviers, murderers, debaters, deceivers, malignant. I remind you, they knew God. Malignant, whisperers, gossipers, backbiters, haters of God, spiteful, prideful, boasters, inventors of all evil things, disobedient, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. How they become all those things, Romans chapter 1, verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful. When we get away from remembering the sacrifice and we stop being thankful, we remove the barrier that keeps us from becoming those things. Because I cannot help but be thankful and not live for Christ. The measure of our thankfulness is how we live for Him. You see, a person is truly thankful for all the things we just talked about is someone who goes soul winning. The person, who we, the person who is truly thankful wants to develop a relationship with God, is willing to get up at 4 or 5 in the morning to read the Word of God. Amen. The person who is truly thankful for the sacrifice is somebody who is at church every time the doors are open. Amen. The person who is truly thankful, you fill in the blank. The question is, when we look at our lives this week, have we truly been thankful? I will be the first one in the room to raise my hand and say, no, I haven't been. And you know what? Sadly, to my shame, I need to be more thankful. This do in remembrance of me. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Preacher.